Fortune to restore order, an admirable maneuver, which the provosty bequeathes to the constabulary, the constabulary to the marechaussee, and the marechaussee to the present gendarmerie of Paris. Doors, windows, loopholes, the roofs of the houses, swarmed with thousands of calm and honest faces, gazing at the palace and at the crowd, and desiring nothing more. For most of the good people of Paris are quite content with the sight of the spectators. Nay, a blank wall, behind which something or other is going forward, is to us an object of great curiosity. If it could be given to us mortals living in this year of grace to mingle in imagination with those Parisians of the fifteenth century, and to enter with them, shoved, elbowed, hustled, that immense hall of the palace, so straightened for Rome on the 6th of January, 1482, the sight would not be destitute either of interest or of charm, and all that we should see round us would be so ancient as to appear absolutely new. If the reader pleases, we will endeavor to retrace in imagination the impressions which he would have felt with us on crossing the threshold of the great hall, amid this motley crowd, coated, gowned, or clothed in the paraphernalia of office. In the first place, how one's ears are stunned with a noise, how one's eyes are dazzled. Overhead is a double roof of pointed arches, sealed with carved wood, painted sky blue, and studded with fleur-de-lis in gold. Underfoot, a pavement of alternate squares of black and white marble. A few paces from us stands an enormous pillar, then another, and another. In all seven pillars, intersecting the hall longitudinally, and supporting the thrust of the double vaulted roof. Round the first four pillars are shops, glistening with glass and jewelry, and round the other three benches worn and polished by the hose of the pleaders and the gowns of the attorneys. Along the lofty walls, between the doors, between the windows, between the pillars, is ranged the interminable series of all the kings of France ever since Faramon. The indolent kings with pendant arms and downcast eyes, the valiant and warlike kings with heads and hands boldly raised toward heaven, the tall pointed windows are glazed with panes of a thousand hues. At the outlets are rich doors finely carved, and the whole ceiling, pillars, walls, wainscot, doors, statues, covered from top to bottom with a splendid coloring of blue and gold, which already somewhat tarnished at the time we behold it, was almost entirely buried in dust and cobwebs in the year of grace 1549, when Dupreuil still admired it by tradition. Now, figure to yourself that immense oblong hall, illuminated by the dim light of a January day, stormed by a motley and noisy crowd pouring in along the walls and circling round the pillars, and you will have a faint idea of the general outline of the picture, the curious details of which we shall endeavor to delineate more precisely. It is certain that if Ravaillac had not assassinated Henry the Fourth, there would have been no documents of his trial deposited in the Rolls office of the Palace of Justice, and no accomplices interested in the destruction of those documents— Consequently, no incendiaries obliged, for want of better means, to burn the Rolls office in order to burn the documents, and to burn the Palace of Justice in order to burn the Rolls office. Of course, there would have been no fire in 1618. The old palace would still be standing with its old great hall, and I might then say to the reader, Go look at it, and thus we should both be spared trouble, myself the trouble of writing, and him that of perusing an indifferent description." This demonstrates the novel truth that great events have incalculable consequences. It is indeed possible that the accomplices of Ravaillac had no hand in the fire of 1618. There are two other plausible ways of accounting for it. 
First, the great star of fire, a foot broad and a foot and a half high, which fell, as everybody knows, from the sky upon the palace on the 7th of March after midnight. Secondly, this stanza of Théophile. Certes, ce fut un triste quand à Paris, la dame justice, pour avoir mangé trop d'épices, se mit tout le palais en feu. Whatever may be thought of this threefold explanation, political, physical, and poetical, of the burning of the Palace of Justice in 1618, the fact of the fire is unfortunately most certain. Owing to this catastrophe, and above all to the successive restorations which have swept away what it spared, very little is now left of this elder Palace of the Louvre, already so ancient in the time of Philip the Fair, that the traces of the magnificent buildings erected by King Robert and described by Higaldus had then to be sought for. What has become of the chancery chamber, where St. Louis consummated his marriage, the garden where he administered justice, habited in a camlet coat, a surcoat of linsey-woolsey without sleeves, and a mantle over all of black serge,